Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Good evening and welcome to the front row. Tom Block and Keith Jones with you. Thanks for tuning in. Got a good, solid, jam-packed hour for you as per usual coming up today. But it will start uh, at the normal starting place when you talk sports in Tallahassee, and that's Florida State Athletics. And in this particular case, KJ, we actually have a, a real game to talk about, not just practice speculation and depth chart discussion, but we can react to Florida State's season opening victory over Texas State. And, and my initial reaction basically was, wow. I mean, I, I was playing in my mind prior to kickoff. What what would be the one or two or three things that I would like to see? I, I'd like to see Golson go turnover free. I'd like to see Florida State establish the running game. And I'd like to see Florida State defensively establish themselves early in the ball game and not have to pull something out of their hat later on. And guess what? All three of those, in my opinion, came uh, to fruition. And uh, I don't I don't know other than – a couple of drop punts, I don't know that you could have drawn up a more um, fulfilling, this is the way it should go when they went out and did it, scenario than we saw on Saturday night. Yeah, the Cliff's notes from Jimbo and when we taped a show and when he met with the media on Monday was sort of a defense, he was excited, special teams, disappointed, and offense lukewarm and I'll, I'll say it this way because I thought the offense was pretty good it's interesting and I, I get the benefit and, and of of hosting coach Fisher's show so I, I listen to him on a weekly basis but just the proliferation of media in general fans and, and everybody has heard it but I it, it's interesting to me the difference between the way he talks defense and offense because on defense the glass is always half full and on offense it's always half empty so on defense it's Giorgio Newberry really set the edge and he made a great play and Terrence Smith was healthy again he was exploding to the ball and Jalen Ramsey's physical and on offense the discussion is always but right there and but not quite we're yeah. right there and, and exactly not quite. exactly you know Freddie Stevenson was great I thought he drifted a couple plays we need him to stay dialed in the whole time the receivers were good but they got to be more crisp in their routes they got to block a little bit better uh, you know Everett Golson got us in some good run checks made some nice throws but but that was only part of it. so anyway Anyway, the point being, that's just the natural tendency of Jimbo as a former quarterback. But if you really listen to him each week, that's the way his, his dialogue unfolds. And, and, and as we've come to know, uh, Jimbo now in his sixth season, you know, he, he very much is going to talk the positive. Uh, it's in between uh, takes and when y'all are getting set up for your show and that type of thing. Where occasionally he'll let out what is really his feelings about something that, that can be negative. I just don't know that he had a whole lot of them that he could go to in, in this particular contest. And he doesn't even let out much of that. Not not that I could share it. He tends to be, and this is to his credit, it's part of the process, I guess. You well, it's know, part of the coach speak. If you get caught in the clutter, it just drags you down. So if a guy goes down while fans and media lament that X player is out, out for the season or whatever Jimbo literally doesn't have time to sit there or he doesn't waste time thinking about it he gets the next guy ready and that's uh just it's the way coaches mindsets go having having said that let's start with the defense Uh, I thought it was the best uh you know of the three phases it performed the best you and you echoed that sentiment um it really started right at the the first play with a physical hit from Jalen Ramsey. But I thought the communication and the camaraderie and the pursuit overall was better. And I think it goes back to what Jimbo has been talking about when he talked about uh, the cohesiveness of this unit. It goes back to what we've talked about in a couple of prior shows where I've been contrasting thoroughbreds versus mules. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. If you're just if you're a country kid and you grew up like I did, you know that those thoroughbreds run fast, but they can get spooked, they can get uh, disoriented, their attention span can go, they can fo- play follow the leader like sheep, and one goes off in a, in a tangent, the rest of them follow. That mule comes out every day puts his nose down and plows that straight line when he gets to the end he turns around he comes back and does it he doesn't worry about what's going on to the left or the right pays attention to his own job does what he was there to do and that's what you've got going on particularly in the defensive line with some of these fourth and fifth year players that that don't have and right now i'll call it the baggage associated with great nfl expectations Okay, I'll go back and, and, and I'll use a guy that you're you're doing work with uh, during the game, Corey Simon. 
when Corey Simon came into his senior year, national championship year in 99, I don't believe he was considered a first-round pick. I don't believe he was even considered more than a fifth or a sixth-round pick. And Corey worked his you-know-what off to get himself in a position where he had an outstanding senior year because he wasn't worried about where am I might fall in the draft. He was worried about how do I get myself into the draft and then how do I get myself up in the draft. That's when you play with reckless abandon. That's when you play not worrying about being hurt. That's when you play I'm going to do my job, do my job so it's on tape. I did my job. And they'll see that. Well, you've got five or six or seven or nine defensive linemen, including the youngsters now, that are buying into that system. And and to that point, I thought the defensive line, recognizing that Texas State is not the greatest offensive line they'll, they'll face, but they were in hurry up. They run a lot of misdirection, a lot of read option. There was a lot of opportunity to make mistakes, and that defensive line did not make the mistakes and, in fact, played an outstanding football game. Yeah, and Giorgio Newberry is the guy who's uh, become the media darling this week because it's an interesting, fresh story that all of a sudden he sort of revived his career. But Jimbo was effusive in his praise of, of Giorgio. Also talked a lot, maybe because he was asked about it, but the fact that, I mean, it was the very first series of the game, Josh Sweat was in there on third down. And, and right now they're playing him in obvious passing situations, which is remarkable with where he's come from. Uh, Brad Lawing obviously has, has made a difference there. Uh, you know, I, you, 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 hate, you hate in one sense if you're an old-time Florida State guy. You, you hate to really start talking about the individual coaches because the more you talk about Lawing, if you've been around for a while, it's like you're talking badly against Sal. Right, yeah, and I don't I and think I don't it's think more it's just different. Well, and a couple of years ago Sal was seen as the glue that helped mm-hmm. Jeremy Pruitt become a great defensive coordinator because they'd worked together. So I, I don't mean it disrespectful right. to Sal who's moved on. I, I think it's uh it's well, just it's, it's just different. It's the way Jimbo talks about uh with all the behind the scenes stuff they do that, you know, I say something you hear it one way. Tom Lang processes it another way. It might have been the same type thing with whatever Sal was communicating compared to the, you know, I'm not saying Brad reinvented the wheel, but no, I think a fresh start has, has helped with some of those guys. And uh, and this is a good thing, what I'm about to say, but being on the sideline, he's got a little Mickey Andrews in him in the way he uh, talks to the players. Is so, he, uh, has he got those uh, sunflower seeds going? It, it's, I don't know about the sunflower <laughs> seeds, but it's it's pretty stern. All of it's not for, for public consumption, but there's some humor mixed in. If you can uh, just think, harken back to the, the day of Mickey. It was uh, some intriguing, spicy stuff down there. Uh, it was entertaining <laughs> in his own right, is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so, yeah, defense, I don't, I don't, I mean, the other good thing across the board is that Florida State came out in, in good shape injury wise. Offensively, uh, Jimbo had been saying it. And uh, I don't know if people didn't want to believe it or they maybe they wanted to see it before they believe it themselves, but he continues to, to speak very highly of, of Bobo in the passing game and he was consistent and now is the the punt returner there but i, I tell you and by what, the way on the punt return uh, I, I returned punts my, my sophomore year the the problem with the punt returners and this sounds stupid and silly and jimbo and jay can argue with me up one side and down the other jay graham the special teams coach they're lining up at 40 line up at 35 line up at 33 and that goes away because then you move back and you move up you don't move side to side you can't catch a punt going east-west. You've got to catch a punt going north-south. So cheat up a little bit, challenge them to kick the ball over your head. That way it won't drop like the first one did because you'll be close enough to get it. And secondly, you'll be moving backwards and forwards, which is how you catch a punt. No extra charge. Just for the sake of our audience, I feel like now would be a good time, and I know what your retort will be, and the answer is I didn't play anywhere, but could you recite your career punt return statistics at this point? Uh, 26 returns, 78 yards, uh, along a 12. I didn't return punts. <laughs> I caught punts. I did not have a single fair catch my entire career. There you go. So I can catch them. I understand. Can't do much with them afterwards, but and, I can catch them. And before you say it, I didn't play anywhere, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I only I only teed you up because I, I know that you're able to recite those statistics there, uh, but it, it was good to see Bobo be cons- because it, it, there's just not veterans on this team. So if the guys who are the most veteran, like a Bobo or a Kermit, who are your juniors, if they're not going to provide consistency, who is? So exactly. it was good to see at least that they did it. I'll also say and, and that something else: run blocking. The receivers and, and the tight ends were phenomenal in in run blocking. 
obviously with Cook and and, and Pender back there, you know, you, you got a little extra excitement because you know they can score from anywhere on the field. But uh, I was very impressed with the run blocking uh, on the perimeter and on the edge uh, by the wide receivers and the tight ends. I was a little surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, just given that Cook missed some time that he got – as many touches as he did, I thought it might be a little bit more conservative in that vein, but clearly he's fine. I do think the ultimate number touches, uh, which I think was 20, I think it was 19 carries and a catch, and Pender was like 14 and three catches, somewhere in there. I think that's about where Jimbo wants to keep his backs, is between 15, 16, and 22 or so. I don't know well, that he and wants I think to go the, super I think, high. Well, and that. I think the bigger picture is you know, he'd want uh, 35, 40, 42 touches from the backfield, and how you split that up can be a product of who's healthiest who's got a hot hand that type of thing but yeah I don't think I you know we we've heard people talk about that you know give the ball to Dalvin 35 times I I don't think that's what Jimbo likes doing I think he'd rather have Dalvin carry it as you mentioned you know 19 times and Pender carry it 14 and Stevenson carry it six and Golson make five you know runs and 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 break it down that way yeah no question yeah Florida State running back unless something changes dramatically, is never going to win the Heisman Trophy. Running backs don't win the Heisman anymore anyway, but the way Florida State has always diversified, uh, shared its workload, there's never going to be a guy that can get gaudy enough statistics. I do think that Dalvin's got a shot at work done single-season rushing record this year, but obviously health will play into that. So that, that's a conversation that needs to be revisited about midpoint of the season. Well, and we'll remember, see where he is. remember, I'm old and old school. He also gets a couple of three extra games to 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 get to that twelve hundred and something that Warwick didn't have opportunity to. And, but and the bowl games count. But having said that, yes, I think he has a very good shot at you it. You know, what year did they start counting the bowl stats? That may have been post Warwick. It might have been late nineties when they started counting bowl stats. I, I don't I think I don't believe Warwick's is included. No. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Warwick Dunn. Warwick Dunn. Some of Peter Warwick's maybe, but I don't know. Yeah. I forget what year they started with that. Anyway, baseball's got the same problem now too, with all their statistics being skewed. Asterisks. There you go. That's what you invented them for. Other takeaways before we um, wrap up this first segment? I, in, in deference to our good friend uh, Jeff Cameron, boy, I wish we could get a punt game. Bless his heart. Uh, you know, it. I, I watched Beatty during pregame. He looked good. I've heard the reports from practice. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a great practice player, and daggum if he doesn't, you know, shank the first one twenty six and and then the other kid from Texas State comes in and he averages 47, 48. Can, can we get him? Can he just swap jerseys somehow? Can he pump for both teams maybe? He, yeah, he was pretty good. Well, you can certainly make the case if you're at mid – like if you're between midfield and the 40, you might be better served going for it. And if you're at the 40 going in, you might just try to guayo out there and eliminate half the field in terms of what you do there if you can't find it, an alternative. And, and Excuse me. And by the way, people were fussing about a guayo. My comments are nothing to sneeze at here, KJ. <clears throat> that was a cough, but – came out as a sneeze everybody's fussing at aguayo well you got to remember those were called pooch kicks he didn't he doesn't do that on his own he was asked to try to pooch that kick down on the 10 yard line five yard line yeah i think yeah but he gets a little too fine i think in terms of trying to put it exactly don't do it anymore kick it out of the end zone then yeah well and that ultimately is the decision jimbo's got to make because he could kick it out of the end zone every time and you could start at the 25 but Jimbo would rather, especially, and I thought the, the coverage units, coverage and the kick return excellent. units were better. I mean, when he kicks it where he's supposed to, they are stopping the guy between the around the 17, 18 yard line. So you are getting seven yards benefit there in terms of field position. But yeah, after you see one or two of those, it's like just kick it through the end zone and we'll and we'll pick up from there. All right, we've got a good show as always. Tim Linefeld, our Seminoles dot com insider, will join us uh, in just a little while. But uh, we're also going to shift gears a little bit because florida state next year as you know uh, at this point we will have just played a labor day season opener against ole miss in the citrus bowl and uh, we're going to bring the ceo of florida citrus sports steve hogan onto the program to talk a little bit about how that game came to fruition what may be in the works down the line and, and that sort of thing this is the front row uh, kj and i in the prime meridian bank studios here in tallahassee's all saints district more to come stay with us listening to the front row with tom block and keith jones got a question email them at the front row at 97.9 espn radio.com here's tom and keith and welcome back it is tom and keith indeed thanks for tuning in we are going to uh 
Shift gears a little bit here. We just got through opening week in a college football season. Next year at this time, Florida State will open its its season and its opening weekend, I guess, Labor Day weekend in Orlando at the Florida Citrus Bowl. And we're pleased to uh, bring to the program the CEO of Florida Citrus Sports, Steve Hogan, who joins us now. First of all, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to join us. How are you? Oh, uh, happy to do. Appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, you bet. Well, let's you know your stadium is going to become Florida State's second home over the next year since they're they're playing there at Labor Day and then the spring game after that, and who knows what the bowl scenario will will look like this year. But uh, for, for, uh, the impetus for this interview really was to talk about the growth of these preseason and and I don't know that that's the right term, but how about opening games, opening weekend games, which uh, it seems like between TV networks and. And, uh, you know, folks interested in generating some revenue with the NFL not in play over Labor Day weekend. It seems like this is becoming a a, a huge industry. Is that, is that accurate? Is that why you guys are in the game? Or just give us the backstory a little bit on what you're trying to do in, in bringing FSU and Ole Miss together. Yeah, no doubt. I, th- I think that's probably accurate. It, it, I'd say that it really has kind of been um, important in the past. You may remember we, we were probably one of the first organizations doing them back in the late 80s, early 90s. Of course, 94, we had Florida State and Notre Dame meet here in a highly you know ranked top five matchup. And and uh, so it, it there are things that have been done in the past, but with the new kind of uh, arrangement in the conferences, things have settled in a little bit. And, and you look at where the postseason is, which is successful in, in every respect uh, for the players and, and I think families and coaches and to a large degree from a television audience standpoint, you know, opening weekend uh, for many of the same reasons and more is is really uh, uh, become exciting because fans have, in many cases, years now to plan to see that game. Uh, nobody's lost any game, so everybody's kind of hope springs eternal. Uh, you know, they're oftentimes in fun destinations. They create matchups that folks aren't used to seeing in opening weekend. So three, four, five games are on a huge kind of postseason-like stage. You've seen some of the ratings this past weekend. Monday night was like the third highest rated all time, I think, on ESPN. So powerful stuff that's come together to be a good model, not only for the schools, which is a showcase game for them from a recruiting standpoint, sometimes often in recruiting hotbeds, um, matchups that are compelling, title sponsors, so forth and so on, revenue that you couldn't produce in your home schedule. For all those reasons, opening weekend is really kind of – solidified itself now going forward is, is really one of the hot properties in, in the college football season. And Steve, you mentioned it used to be in the past you would have to either give up a home game or talk your opponent into giving up a home game in order to play on this, this neutral site. Uh, the way the revenue works right now, as you alluded to, and I, I'd like for you to expand on that just a little bit, uh, for many institutions, Florida State included, they can actually net a larger paycheck than if they actually hosted a home game because of the economics, the TV, et cetera. Yeah, they can. And, and, and you touched on a couple good points there. You know, you think about the scheduling. Um, you can do these often without having to deal with the home and home side. Um, you know, you, you can look at maintaining uh, your, your traditional home schedule in a lot of ways so you're not giving up games. And you're also not having to overload your season ticket base with with higher kind of season ticket costs to have staple games like this added to the to the calendar, which usually your home schedule is pretty compelling anyway. So you kind of you don't lose anything there. You don't necessarily go home and away, and then you take this one off and you put it you put it in a neutral site where the ticket prices is, is often more com- commensurate with what the market would would dictate or demand for that. And you put a title sponsor on it. You put all kinds of other revenue streams. The the home team's not now paying. You know the, the the away team some large sum, often seven figures plus for the visiting team that they have as an expense. You've got a lower kind of average ticket price in a home setting than you would at a one-off away neutral site game. Uh, you have all the costs of running your own stadium that day, so all those things kind of equal up to a little bit better revenue pro forma in in a neutral site setting. Not that you can't do them at home, but they just kind of work. I think a little bit cleaner and nicer um, in all those respects, and they end up making a little bit more money for what they need to do for the rest of their program. And I know the traditional book, whoever wrote it, says that you're supposed to schedule a couple of cupcakes at home uh, to begin your season. But as a former player here at Florida State, I can tell you that as a as an athlete going through uh, winter workouts and mat drills and spring ball and summer and seven-on-seven, seven, I'd much rather be gearing up to play Ole Miss – 
in Orlando to open the season than to play uh, ABC College at my home stadium to open the season. I I think there's a great deal to be said for the football-related importance of these types of games. I think you're right. You know, I mean, the the best want to play the best, and you, you competed at that level, and I think you get up for all those games that way and, and get something to look forward to. I think also, you, you know, you're kind of taking your product and you're putting it in front of a fan base maybe that doesn't always have the, the chance to get the doke and, and, and see the team play. So you, you kind of put it somewhere else, and a fan base gets to consume your product that, that doesn't normally get to go to Tallahassee. So I think all that's good. I think you're putting the kids on a national stage again, which is fantastic for them and their families. And I think recruiting-wise, kids are getting to see that program on a national footprint, and that just, I think, kind of all boats rise. And, you know, too much of a good thing is – is probably not where you want to go with these things, but I think a right a, a good balance uh, in your overall scheduling model is is really a winner for everybody involved. We are talking with Steve Hogan, the CEO of Florida Citrus Sports. FSU opens next season against Ole Miss at the Citrus Bowl. I'm going to commit a, uh, a radio host sin here. I'm going to lump about three questions into one. But I'm, uh, a, I'm I'm curious if your plan going forward is to have one of these games every year. B, I'm curious if FSU is in play for any others. And C, I'm wondering, in light of the first year of the college football playoff, if all of a sudden, to Key's point, there are a lot of other schools expressing interest in these, i.e. Big 12 schools that maybe didn't have the strength of schedule they needed last year, and it, and it hurt them in the long run. Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best, Tom. I'm not all that bright, <laughs> but I'll try and capture at least two or three. But <laughs> it, um, you know, one and two, really, to your point. Yes, this is going to be an annual series. We're going to we're going to play these every year. That that was our goal. You know, we kind of looked at Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, and Orlando. That was always our thought that there'd at least be four. Everybody's kind of trying to play in this space a little bit, um, but I think we'd we'd like to be that fourth leg of that table that has an annual kind of power opening weekend game and and we have an equal partner in espn and and uh, we're excited about being able to do that we think orlando works so yes there um yes we'd like florida state to be a part of that in some sort of a regular um format you know whether we could have them here you know once every four years or something we'd love to kind of start to loop that in and want to have that discussion in earnest and and Third, yes, uh, we've had a lot of schools now start to talk to us. I mean, of course, you saw us announce Alabama and Louisville uh, for 18. Uh, we're getting ready to, to close up 19 as we speak. And I, I think, you know, all of those are this level game, you know, with Florida State and Ole Miss. <clears throat> so I think that, you know, we're, we're starting to get calls from all conferences and, and folks saying, what, it, what would it take to get in? What does that look like? How many years out? Um, a lot of people we find want to recruit Florida. You know, a lot of people kind of like Orlando as a destination, and, and so we're excited about the future. I'm going to segue this conversation a little bit to the bowl postseason, which seems kind of crazy here in the first 10 days of September after one week of the college football season. But uh, you also host uh, the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl and the Russell Athletic Bowl, and I didn't realize till I started doing some prep here that the ACC, or I guess I had forgotten, does have a chance to go to the Citrus Bowl in certain years. This is not one of them because the Orange Bowl has a uh, a play at one of the semifinals, but uh, the Russell Athletic Bowl clearly has an ACC tie-in. So if I have this right, uh, the, the pecking order this year for ACC schools would be College Playoff 1, the next host bowl, which wouldn't be the Orange, it'd be the Chick-fil-A or the Fiesta would be 2, and then the Russell Athletic Bowl would be 3. Or in a scenario without an ACC playoff team, you would actually have the second pick this year. Is that the way it, it, I'm reading it? Am I reading that, it correctly? Yeah, that's correct. So that uh, the ACC lineup along with Notre Dame, and, and we get first crack at that. So uh, we're, And we're, we love it. Happy about it. We, we haven't talked about the spring game yet, which is also in Orlando. But And who knows the way this season will play out. Again, we played one, one week of the year. Uh, you know, there's upside and also potential downside of Florida State's in play at that point, given that their next two games after the bowl game would be in your stadium as well, the spring game and then the opener next year. Yeah, you know, you got to always look at those things. I mean, we're we're lucky that, I mean, it's in our state. Uh, I, I would probably venture to guess that, that many Florida State fans are, are all over the place. You know, they're all over the state of Florida. Maybe it's even a little bit 
more convenient for those that live in the south part of the state to get up to see the Knowles play. So hopefully it's a good thing, and you know we're we're just looking forward to celebrating the program a lot. Uh, we've had a great relationship here in in the city over the years. I think the spring game is a unique opportunity with the stadium under construction to do a bit of a celebration in the center of the state. Kind of all roads lead there, so to speak, and and put a put a spotlight on the kids and put a spotlight on the program. And it's it's not about revenue or things like that so much as it is um trying to do something fun for for the program and the schools so uh you know i think that the Knowles could play here you know pretty much every week of the season we'd be just fine but for now we'll, we'll take we'll take those two <laughs> well, well and steve one other thing I, I just mentioned to you uh that that's kind of a crazy idea but it's been kicked around and it's getting a little traction is as it relates to the spring game there is some movement and momentum uh maybe very small right now for uh, the potential to to hold the spring game as a scrimmage against another institution that you don't anticipate that you'll play anytime soon. I mean, one of the things that's been kicked around here in Tallahassee and and, and been talked about is, you know, what would it be like if Florida State and Georgia agreed to scrimmage a couple of springs and maybe uh, maybe even three springs or four springs and, and play one in Tallahassee and one in Athens, one in Orlando and, and, and you know, and one in Charlotte or whatever. And uh, I think over time you may see a little momentum even for a neutral site uh, to be involved in the spring when, when your facility, unless it's uh, hosting some form of a concert, you know, doesn't have football going on in it. Just an idea that, uh, that I think has uh, at least some worth relative to discussion. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're you're onto something. It's it's uh, brilliant, you know, from from a lot of respects. But um, one of them, I think, would be <clears throat> would be really good. And you know, as a former player, that that uh, you know, it, when you're working out that long and you're you're kind of get towards the end of camp and you're you're going to get your spring game out of the way, that um, adding that other team to kind of go ones and ones and and kind of mix up so that you're not just you're not team on team the whole day i mean you, you get your defense on the side your offense in there and vice versa and that you know you kind of get a break and and i think that's healthy you know and you see the nfl doing that in in terms of their joint sessions in the preseason and that's worked very very well so i think that there's probably something there that not only is a benefit for the the athletes but uh you know just a benefit overall for the programs and and their exposure to another quality program and, and then just kind of the whole marketing value of it I think is there, there's a winner there somewhere I don't know what the NCAA limitations would be to something like that but it, I think it's it's right that it should be explored well when you pull it off there brother I'm taking credit for it how about that <laughs> no problem <laughs> <laughs> hey I'll, I'll we'll get you out of here on on this because we didn't ask this yet for you know Florida State fans in Orlando I'm sure have been to the Citrus Bowl with everything else you've had going on over over the years potentially but uh, Florida State fans around the state may not have been there since FSU last played in the Champs Bowl so so walk us through if you will go ahead and make your pitch for what the the changes at the stadium and what it's like now Oh it's it's night and day for those of you that have been to the 70 year old Citrus Bowl at the time we totally demolished it uh, to the to the exception of the two modern terrace levels. I mean, we, those were the only things standing. Everything else got taken down to the dirt and rebuilt anew below. So we have now what is a, you know, kind of an NFL grade 65,000 seat stadium that has all the bells and whistles, all the escalator transportation, the, the roomy seats, chair backs, you know, everything that you would come to expect in a modern 21st century building you've got here now. So that that to me, we're just proud of. It's it's a town that that's always hosted neutral side events. There is no NFL team. There is no regular college tenant. So you know the kids are the are the big show um, that year. So I think the fans are going to now have a have, have a stadium that they deserve to to consume the product in. And and I'd close too by letting you know that. At another show date, I mean, we get closer to the spring game. I think a lot of fans are going to learn that Orlando's been doing something the last couple of years that nobody else, I don't think, has done in the country where um, this facility has really become a beating heart in the center of some traditionally strong neighborhoods that have really been left behind over the generations that now, over the last two years, have a living, breathing partnership with the success of the building are going to actually lift a lot of families, really 2,500 families to start that live in the shadow of the stadium, that every event that happens here, college or otherwise, motorsports events, Rolling Stones, the more success this building has, the more success some of these families that have really needed a helping hand are going to have in their life. So I think you know we could talk all day. It's called Lift Orlando, um, and I think the more that you learn about it, the more you're going to be proud to come participate in a building that has that kind of social responsibility in, in the Central Florida market. 
Well said, Steve, and uh, we, we can uh, revisit and welcome you back to the program when we get closer to the spring game and get into so th- to those details. We well, appreciate- and then we'll do a separate program on our uh, good friend Paul Kennedy. That'll just be the, the topic uh, for our next show. How about that? <laughs> I'm not sure you have enough time. You might have to couple together a week's worth for, for, for PK. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, Steve Hogan, the, the CEO from Florida Citrus Sports. Thanks so much Thanks, for joining Steve. us on the front row. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right, we'll react to that. We'll also get into Knowles' talk with our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt, in just a little bit. This is the front row it's presented by hobson chevrolet buick and Cairo. get your best deal the hobson way you're listening to the front row with tom block and keith jones only on 97.9 espn radio here's tom and keith And we welcome you back to the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District. Tom Block, Keith Jones with you. And uh, time to get a little social here. We'll remind you that uh, Madison Social has trivia night on Tuesday nights. And also, it's uh, obviously the place to be on game weekends. We've got an 11.30 kick this Saturday. So I think that means Madison Social. Two words. Bloody Mary. Those are two good words. Good choice. I, I was going to suggest that they may be opening at 3 in the morning. I'm not really sure. But the point is by, Sometime the t- early. by the time you park on Saturday, Madison Social will be open and you should stop there on your way into the game. Those of us who work the game have to wait until after the game to stop at Madison Social. But that's all right as well. By the way, uh, happy birthday to uh, Matt Thompson who uh, I think he said, was it 50 or? or I thought it was 23 or 24. It's it's significantly younger than me, so it's nowhere near 50. <laughs> but uh, happy, happy birthday to Matt. And, folks, uh, the moral of the story is get on out to uh, to Madison Social. Let's take a moment. Tim Linnefelt will join us next day, and we'll get back to Noel's talk. But I want to react to some of the comments that uh, Steve Hogan uh, had there. First of all, not, not too surprising, but it, it is going to become an annual event there. And I would think, I don't know if, in his scenario, Florida State plays there once every four years. FSU may have interest in that. I mean, I know FSU has interest in playing the neutral site games and getting the extra additional revenue. Exactly. And part of that, too, Tom, is the Citrus Bowl is doing a great job of positioning themselves to make sure they're included in the playoffs, the semifinal games. At some point, although I don't know that their desire is, they may even bid on the national championship game. So, you know, all of this goes towards what Steve is trying to do to position what he calls the building, position the building in the national thought process. I think they may have already applied for that. Uh, They're getting set the college football playoff to announce the the next few years destinations for the championship in Orlando. There was like 11 cities that applied and Orlando may be on that list Uh, as far as the spring game and we didn't get too much into the nuts and bolts of it the game's a year away uh, I think it's an absolute no-brainer to to use the expression that uh, Nolan likes Uh, it's a no-brainer to 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 move your spring game down there occasionally you know I'm not sure you want to do it all the time and if you ever got to the point as I alluded to which would require some NCAA uh, change of language and it would require coaches buying in and I know there'd be some downsides about having those controlled type scrimmages uh, between two universities as part of the spring finish but just taking it on the road I think is going to create an unbelievable amount of excitement. Well, I think it changes. It does. It creates excitement to a game that, frankly, there's always excitement locally when it's here. And then you go and you watch the first two plays and the stadium's not full and it's just not the same deal. I think it will add to that. Now, this year it's it's being done more out of necessity. Out of necessity. And I get that. And I, I, nobody at FSU has suggested to me that they're going to take it on the road more frequently. But it would not surprise me. And, and the local merchants won't be in favor of this if that happens but i do think there would be some pretty good benefit to fsu if they did an every other year out of town thing not always orlando it could be tampa jimbo could let recruiting dic- dictate well, they could go to jacksonville or wherever it's they're a looking. concept that other schools have done i know north carolina has taken a couple of days and practiced during spring in Charlotte. You had mentioned that Virginia, University of Virginia, had done a similar thing in the Tidewater area uh, to the point where those two schools had to actually petition the NCAA and get clarification that if you are off campus and holding a workout, can you have recruits there? Who can be there? Do they have to be registered? Can they be uninvited? Can they, you know, how close can they get to the drills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And the whole reason 
for doing that in addition to making your your program available to maybe to some fans that a don't have to travel as far or b don't travel at all but will go to orlando or jacksonville when it's there is recruiting uh, to expose your program you know into other areas uh you know it's all part of the ongoing process and i i think there's some worth there uh, at least from a dialogue standpoint to continue the discourse yeah, and, and local fans here in Tallahassee won't want to hear that, but the reality is there's FSU fans in all the big markets in this state. Well, and, except, and from, except, Tom, if I'm in Tallahassee and, I, and I've gone through basketball season and I'm down in the March and then I get into April and it's in the middle of April and I can take a weekend and go somewhere else to watch football – as a Tallahassee person, that has some some. It validity. does. It does. That's a fair point. Yeah, that is a fair point. Uh, the the other thing it lets Florida State do is it lets them uh, sort of be a traveling roadshow to sell tickets and and try and uh, you know generate hype that way, which I'm sure they're going to do when they're they're in Orlando this year. It's an interesting concept. I don't know how long it would take to get to the idea of playing another school. That would need some NCAA clearance, obviously. I the the answer to that though is that. You would generate more revenue from your spring football game if FSU played Auburn on a home and home basis. Hypothetically, we're in we're in dreamland scenario here, folks. By the way, um, but generating more revenue is something that schools and universities and athletic departments are trying to do. So at some point, that discussion is going to be held in more earnest because there would be an opportunity there to put a better price, a significant price, not a significant, but you could charge twenty five bucks if FSU is playing Auburn. And instead you could of nothing. you could designate certain part of it to to foundation or to scholarships or I mean you could you could you could take it in a way where folks knew that the money was going to be used for things other than just opening the stadium up. I, I, again, you know whether it's Auburn, whether it's Georgia, you know I don't know. I just know I've I've never. Per- personally been to a football game or a scrimmage in athens yeah and there there ain't going to be an opportunity anytime soon unless we do something like this it's the same concept as what high schools do they play a jamboree uh you know start of their regular season end of their spring season and and it works out all right we'll get back to uh fsu talk interesting things to ponder we'll see how many years that uh, takes to come to fruition but it wouldn't surprise me in the least if it did our seminoles.com insider tim lunefelt will join us we come back he's keith i'm tom and this is the front row Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Welcome back to the front row. Time for our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt, to join us. I'll remind you that Jimbo Fisher's postgame press conference streams live following every home game. That obviously includes this weekend against USF. You can watch it live on your phone or tablet via the Seminoles.com mobile app. Also streams live on your desktop for you old school folks like KJ. No subscription required. Totally free. It's the only place to watch Jimbo's pressers live following every home game. Do also, I need a password? Also, you don't need a password. Stop looking in that top drawer where you're not supposed to leave your passwords to see what your password is, KJ. All right, let's welcome Tim Linnefeld in. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great, Tom. How are you? Great. Listen, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, a lot of different things, so I thought I'd just ask your general impressions on the week that Steve Gabbard had. How did he look as a long snapper this this week to you? Because there hasn't been discussion about that yet. Uh, fantastic. I thought all the, uh, the the long snaps were both long and snapped and clean, and I didn't see any issues there. So uh, And sometimes longer than the punt. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, since since Keith went there, let's, let's start there. Um, are there any options there? Oh yeah, at punting, you mean? Yes, man. I I just don't know what to say about it anymore. You know, um, it's, uh, it's it's just kind of a difficult situation. And 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 no, I, I don't know that there are um, at least none that are that are immediately apparent. Maybe something emerges. Um, but I think your best bet is just to you know, and I understand if you want to roll your eyes at this, just kind of keep on going and and, and powering through it, and and hope that that things get more consistent in, in that area. And. You know, Casey started off obviously with the 26 yarder, and, and you know, everybody's sort of looking at themselves like, "Oh man!" But you know, he did come back and, and hit one. Uh, I think it was 41 yards 
uh, later in the game. And so, you know, the thing I would say for him is that it's not as if it's a lack of ability. He, he clearly can, we've seen him do it, but, but putting it together on a, on a kick by kick basis, uh, hasn't really, uh, hasn't really happened for him yet. And, and I, and I don't know, man, uh, it's the same thing that, uh, the Jimbo Fisher said, uh, he said a last season when, when he was asked about it, I was like, if, if we had other options, you know, we would, we would look into them. But, but right now it's, it's just kind of what it is. I, mean, I have an, I have an option. Uh Oh, here's the option. Make him shave his head. I think you're going to say don't punt, which would, no, that would probably no, work. No, that's a, that is always an option. But and and don't misunderstand, Beatty's a great kid. I mean, uh, there's nobody on that team that that he doesn't get along with. But gee whiz, kick with the other foot, <laughs> do something different. Well, I'll say two things, and we don't have to we don't have to beat the punter thing to death. Number one, obviously, when you look at the way Jimbo values recruiting. It, it wasn't worth finding another punter and, and throwing a scholarship out there and, and having two punters on scholarship and counting against the 85, I guess. And number two, you know things are going pretty well for your program when the number one complaint for about a three-year period is the punting game, which is where we've been for Florida State when you win 29 in a row. So that said, let's let's move to another topic. And there really wasn't a lot to, I don't think, find too much fault with, Tim. I don't know if you disagree uh, about that. I guess Keith and I started the show talking defense, so we'll start talking offense here. We didn't talk at length about Everett Golson, but general thoughts from your vantage point and your perspective on what you saw out of Everett in the offense on Saturday. I, I thought he looked uh, really sharp. Uh, and, you know, for that, for that first half there, you were kind of wondering, you know, it was a lot of uh, short passes, play-action passes, not a lot of drop back and fling it. And then you were sort of thinking to yourself, okay, this is maybe what the offense is going to look like this year. And then that totally would be fine. And, and, and they, they did really well uh, running it that way. When he finished 7-9 and nine at, at halftime for something in the neighborhood of, you know, 75 yards, and you think, well, okay, if you can be that efficient, that's, that's fine. But then, you know, we saw it open up in the second half. And, and again, I thought he looked really good. Uh, you know, talking to Jimbo Fisher, he, he is kind of, if you read between the lines a little bit, it's sort of revealed that you know, there are still some things that, that Everett Golson needs to learn, still some, uh, some tenets of the offense that he needs to pick up. But overall, just, you know, for a guy who's still learning what he's doing, he looked really good. And, and from a pure, you know, talent standpoint, a guy that can just drop back and throw it accurately, throw it with some zip on it. I mean, I think you really saw that on Saturday. So uh, if, if this is him not knowing what he's doing, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he looks like when he does. Tim, to be overly critical, there were two series, uh, back-to-back series, if my memory serves. One where he uh, dropped back and was throwing the ball on an out. The defensive end jumped up and batted the ball down. So your first thought is, okay, he's 4'11". He'll never get the ball out of the pocket because he's so short. And then on the next series, there were, it wasn't necessarily a read option, but it was a little more of a design run. And, and he got tripped up right at the line of scrimmage and picked up about two yards. So the naysayers are sitting back there going, see, he's too short. He can't get the ball out of the pocket. And he really isn't as good a runner as we thought he was. Boy, did the second half change that thought process. Yeah, it, it really did. And, and I thought, you know, to me, the most impressive play of the game, uh, at least from Everett Golson's perspective, was I think it was in the third quarter uh, where he threw a pass over the middle to Javon Harris. And that, man, it just looked like it was shot out of a cannon, split two defenders. And whether or not it was the right decision, I don't know. But just the throw itself was, was just beautiful, right on the money. Uh, it hit, hit, hit uh, Javon Harrison right in the chest for a, uh, for a long completion. You're like, man, you know, this guy can really throw it. Uh, I was really impressed by that. And, and also the throw to Ryan Izzo for the touchdown. Had yeah, to that pass to Izzo was, was, was pitcher perfect. Exactly. And then just had the right amount of touch, loft, all that that you, that you want to see. And, uh, and again, you know, if, if this is the baseline and, and if he's going to continue to prove, uh, I think he's going to be just fine. You mentioned Ryan Izzo. Let's talk about that because the way the tight end position was painted was a little bit of this guy can block but can't catch, this guy can catch but can't block, uh, and, and uh, you know, Maven maybe can do both, but he's a little bit raw right now. Well, it looked like Izzo did a pretty good job of both those, uh, and, and that was another guy that Jimbo really raved about this week. No, for sure, and um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I am uh, currently writing about Ryan Izzo as we speak. And where can uh, we where can we find that article? Tim? <laughs> it, it will be on Seminoles dot com. Hopefully this afternoon, if I if I can get it done in time. Is that on the World Wide Web, Tim? The, it's, yes, the the information superhighway. I think is what they're calling it. Excellent. So go ahead. So, but but to get back to uh, to Ryan Izzo, yeah, I, I thought he was really impressive, and he was a guy that you know that seemed like there was so uh, there wasn't much clarity from the tight end position, and it almost made you kind of not very excited about it, especially given uh, what Florida State has had at the tight end position over the last several years in Nick O'Leary. So for, for him to come out and, uh, you know, obviously made the nice, uh, made the nice touchdown catch, had one other catch. But really I think the, the biggest thing that, that Jimbo Fisher took from it and maybe that Ryan Izzo took from it 
uh, is, is how well he blocked. Uh, and, and again, you know, like everybody on Florida State's roster, he's going to have to block more talented guys down the road. But for a guy playing his first game uh, and, and having those assignments really for the first time, I thought he looked really good. Uh, he said that he's, he's put on a, a pretty good bit of weight since uh, his high school days. I looked it up. He played at 220 uh, as a high school senior. He's about 241 right now. So uh, I still got that him. We'll say that again? I still got him. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe you can show him a thing, too. Uh, but, you know, to, to be able to do that and then also, you know, make, make uh, the plays in the, in the receiving game, uh, it, it just seems to me like so of those three guys, uh, you know, Ryan Izzo is first in line, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, as long as he keeps playing well, you got to think that, that he's going to get the majority of the reps there uh, until he gives him a reason not to. Do we know who his grandfather is yet? <laughs> you know what? Somebody, uh, somebody mentioned that the other day. We forgot to ask if he had any, uh, any famous grandparents. <laughs> Jimbo uh, came out and said that Bobo's the punt returner. Now, that was a Jack Nicholas Nick O'Leary reference for Keith, who's looking at me like, why are you asking about the grandfather? It makes sense now. There you go. Thanks I- for explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> um that Bobo's the punt returner right now, and and Bobo seemed excited about that. He returned punts in high school. He looked fine the other night. Uh, I, I understand that that job is always sort of open, if you will, based on how you perform on a weekly basis, like any job. But do you get the sense that Bobo is is really the the, the permanent answer right there, or are there still sort of auditions going on behind the scene? I think he's as permanent as you can be, with the caveat that, and I think this has been made clear over the years: if, if you don't catch the ball, you're not going to return punts here. So. Uh, he, he's got the job because he's the guy that, that caught the ball, and uh, and I do think he's uh, you know, he's pretty steady there. He, he's never had any problems catching the ball on kickoff returns. He's served in that role before uh, as well. And, and you know, I guess in a way, it kind of surprises me that, that he wasn't more in the mix uh, earlier on in fall camp. Even though he had, you know, I asked him about it, he had done plenty of uh, punt returning in fall camp too. So uh, yeah, man, I think as long as, as he holds on to the ball, and it seems like uh, he's the most sure-handed of the bunch, uh, he'll be the guy back there for the foreseeable future. Let me ask you this. This may put you on the spot. I don't know, but I saw, and I don't know if he's on the first team, but I saw somebody inquiring about Derwin James and the jersey number three and Bobo Wilson, who wears number three, being on the, the punt return unit together. Uh, so I guess what I'm hinting at is, are we going to have another scenario where somebody's going to have to change jerseys or we're, you know, we're going to have to unretire another number and, and put it on somebody else? <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe Bobo can grab number two if it's uh, if it's uh, if it's available. Oh, no, oh, I, no, no, he'd have to fight Jalen. Ram- if two was available, he'd have to go through Jalen Ramsey to get it. <laughs> I, I, that one's taken, spoken for, otherwise. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Uh, no, I, they can they can pull out twenty eight, right? Well, <laughs> it's available. I think. They, uh, no, I, you know, I think that's kind of one of those uh, cross that bridge if they get there. I think again, the, the number one priority on on punt return, nearly number one, two, and three priorities is you got to catch the ball. Uh, one to make sure that you don't uh, turn over, you know, have a turnover like they did on Saturday night, and then two to make sure that you don't lose an extra ten, fifteen, twenty yards like they did on Saturday night. Uh, so there, maybe there'll be some experimentation there, but but right now having the sure-handed guy in Bubba Wilson, I think, is more important than than having Derwin James out there on the coverage team now. If, if Derwin James, you know, presents himself as a guy that you have to have out there, and then you, you know, get creative with the uh, the numbers again. But until then, I think Bobo Wilson has priority. And obviously, uh, you talk punt returns, you go back to kickoff returns. <clears throat> I don't know what uh, the length was, but I thought Jalen set a new ACC mark in the long jump on the sidelines. There, what do you think? <laughs> oh man, that was uh, that was really something, and uh, definitely uh, acrobatic. I, I, it amazes me, you know, all those guys when they uh, they fall down and, and get hit. And, you know, he hit the ground really hard and just popped up like it was nothing. I was like, okay, you know, you, you see guys uh, guys like us, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd probably still be laying there, but uh, for somebody like him, it's uh, it's nothing. So. Yeah, he's uh, he's an, an athletic, acrobatic guy, and it's kind of fun. Just even even if he you know if he doesn't break the uh, the return for touchdown, it's just kind of fun to watch him run with the ball in his hands as a defensive back. We don't get to see that too terribly often. This week has been the rebirth of Giorgio Newberry. I know he's been the media darling this week. Jimbo raved about him. What uh, what's something we wouldn't know about Giorgio, or that he attributes his success to, or or just the light switch going on? You know, what can you tell us about that? <laughs> I think a big thing, uh, two things. One is uh, he, he couldn't say enough nice things about uh, about his new coach, Brad Lawing, and I think that was probably a big deal for him. You know, I think just maybe something clicked there, uh, something clicked with him and Brad Lawing that, that maybe, like you said, maybe made the light come on or, or, or guys provided him with some extra motivation, whatever the case may be. Uh, he, he really had a ton of nice things to say about Brad Lawing. said the other day he uh, – he went up to him and, and just said, "Hey, you know, I, I want to thank you for not giving up on me." 
which, you know, as, as a player, you know, from Georgia Newberry's perspective, he's a fifth-year senior who, who hadn't made, really hadn't made much of an impact. So you can't blame him for thinking that a coach might want to give up on him. So you could, you could tell it really meant a lot that, that I think he felt like he had a fresh, clean slate with uh, with Brad Lawing and that uh, that he knew that he, he could maybe contribute in a way that maybe he couldn't in years past, if that makes sense. And then the other thing that I want to touch on is, is his uh, his weight and his body. He says that he's actually up about 15, 20 pounds. He's playing up around 290, 295. Uh, and before, he was playing in the 270s. And I found that kind of hard to believe because, man, he just looks like a different guy. You know, he looks leaner, uh, slimmer, more muscular, uh, while also being heavier, which is which is really interesting and also really impressive. So uh, I think that's helping him out a lot, too. Uh, the, the having the extra weight, but also uh, being in better shape uh, can, can really make some different things happen against both uh, offensive tackles and uh, interior linemen because they, they like to move them around both outside and inside. And, Tim, I, I just seem to think with NLS and, and some of the other older guys, you've got some fourth- and fifth-year guys in the secondary that, that uh, you know, they're playing their last year of eligibility. I just think there's a, a cohesiveness and a, and a spirit and a, and a focus that is different than we saw in the in the 2014 group that that breeds teamwork, uh, working together, doing your job, knowing the other guy's going to do his, and, and eliminates the need to try to play outside of yourself or to make a play that's not there. Do you see the same thing? I really do, and it's funny you, you ask that because uh, yeah, I'd heard some of those types of things really in the spring and then on into fall camp, and, and I tend to be kind of skeptical. Uh, when I hear stuff like that about, uh, you know, how chemistry is that much better or the hunger is there. And, you know, it just kind of sounds like cliche stuff to me. But I do think there's something to be said, especially uh, for some of the fifth-year guys, the LaMarcus Brutus, Giorgio Newberry, Tyler Hunters, those guys who, who kind of got in here at the ground floor. They were here in, in 2011 when they lost a handful of games and played in the Champ Sports Bowl. And then they were here for the, the you know, incredible three-year run of ACC titles and national titles and all that. And so here they are, a small group of guys in their last year, their fifth year, and I think it's really important to them to not let that standard drop. You know what I mean? They don't want to be the group that, that let the flag fall, so to speak. So I think that you, you've seen that with all those guys. They, they really are kind of pushing themselves to another level to, to make sure that they end their careers you know, on, on the same kind of high note that they experience in the middle of their career. Tim, great insight as always. Appreciate it. You got it, Tom. Thank you. Tim Linnefeld from Seminoles.com, the only place you can catch Jimbo's post-game press conference, also his Monday presser, highlights, reaction stories from every FSU sporting event, your most comprehensive coverage of FSU athletics. Check out Knoll TV. Yes, you can do that as well. Maybe I'll do that in this break. We'll come back and wrap things up on the front row right after this. We don't need no thought control. You're listening to The Front Row with Tom Locke and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at thefrontrow at 979espnradio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. Need to update that to you've been listening to The Front Row. We've run out of time, Keith. That, that we have. Uh, there's a game Saturday. 1130. Uh, the Bulls. 1130. In set, the morning. Set your clocks back. It's not daylight savings time, but you need to set them early anyway to get there to the stadium. Well, Jimbo's planning two scrimmages during the fall camp. He has them at 1130, so kids will eat pregame meal at 730, get used to this. I've been eating a meal at about 930 every Saturday morning in anticipation of the press meal. Well, that's because you don't need the four-hour digestive. Understand. All right, we're out of time. He's Keith. I'm Tom. Thanks for tuning in. We do this each and every Wednesday at 6 o'clock. This is The Front Row. 